Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 40 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on this episode, we're going to delve into the rich history of next week's US Open venue, Pinehurst, with local author Chris Buey. Chris has written a fascinating account of the beginnings of the resort and some of the area's other iconic golf courses, but more interesting is the backstory of some of the men who played a part in those developments. We'll be chatting with Chris uh, shortly, but before we come to that, let me introduce my co-hosts for the day. As always, the ever-insightful blogger, author, and analyst, Jeff Shackle from Fred from the US. Shack, looking forward to chatting to Chris shortly after we've had a, uh, a bit of a chat about what unfolded at Muirfield this past yes, week. Yes, yes. Uh, he'll, he'll bring us back to reality after all the wacky stuff that's been going on. <laughs> If we ever finish at the US Open like we did at Muirfield, it'll be one of the most talked about in uh, in history, I suspect. Here in Australia, back from his sojourn to Barn Boogle Dunes, where we caught him last time we uh, we caught up. Columnist, course architect, former professional Mike Clayton. Clayton, no doubt Barn Boogle was special as always, but you're now back in the land of the living. Welcome back to you. I am, but I did have a treat. Yes, so we played the composite course at Royal Melbourne. So that was... Oh, wow. There were some guys from Augusta out looking at the course for the Asian Amateur in October. So Ah, Yes, the site inspection. They they need to make sure it was okay. Did I miss something? Is the Asian Amateur coming to Royal Melbourne? Yeah, it's in October. They're playing. They're playing the covers, of course, and they're going back finally, which is tremendous. After the they moved for the nineteen ninety eight Presidents Cup, they're going back to the old order. So oh, good. Not only did we play the composite course, we played it in the proper order, which the was proper composite course. You'd have been much your, better. You'd have been yeah. in your element. Did I see you hit it in the uh, bunker, the fairway bunker there on? 10 West, did you I hit the photo of that? I hit like an, only an idiot hits it in there. <laughs> Good, on, there. Good on you for publicly admitting it. What did you make from there? I did make a four. I duffed it out in the hollow in the front, which is the only place to hit it. Because <laughs> if you don't duff it in the hollow in the front, you scull it out of bounds over the back. So um, they, they're the two alternatives. The sand is so thick in that bunker, it's such a brutal shot. You you, you hardly ever get on the green out of there, even, even though it's only 50 yards. It's just brutal. Yeah, fantastic. Well, you would have enjoyed that. What did the uh, what did the Augusta people think of Royal Melbourne? Were they impressed? You would have given them a running commentary, no doubt, with some suggestions for setup. Well, I actually didn't play with them. They played the group ahead with John Hopkins, as a president of Golf Australia. I played with Trevor Hurd, and I and Stephen Pitt played with um, we played with Suo, who's off to the British Amateur next week. We played. We were setting the course up for the Australian Women's Open in February. Oh, so. There was an issue with a few of the tees last time the girls played, so we we moved a few back, and um, it was good. It was good to see a you know a girl play the course properly. And Trevor's always Trevor tends, if anything, to set the tees a little far forward on a couple of holes. But and of course, it was cold in the middle of winter, and she was smashing it down there, sort of saying, "See, Trevor, they can play. Look." <laughs> Fantastic stuff. So it, was, it was a good day. I to have been a fly on the wall shack. There would have been some interesting, oh, <laughs> interesting discussions. Yeah, there indeed. Now, before we come to Chris, who's uh, who is going to wait patiently for us, we'll give him a call shortly. Shack, you were at the memorial last week. What a bizarre tournament that turned into. Talk us through the vibe on the ground there. You, of course, were on site. I saw you did a bunch of video work. What's your role there? You, you, you were like an ambassador for the place. It seemed. I'm the live, the nationwide live studio. Uh, Golf expert, I believe, is what they called me. Yes, not not co-host. Um, so yeah, I'm there uh, nationwide as the presenting sponsor of the tournament, and they have a great little booth where they give out uh, radios to all the fans. Which amazing how I mean, they I think they give out something some ridiculous number, and uh, people of course have a great time listening to the broadcast while they watch the golf. Which I don't know why every tournament doesn't do it because isn't it bizarre? It's the greatest totally thing in the world. changes the experience, and as you know, and it just. Get you engaged, especially Sunday when we had a finish like that. 
I think it just gets the crowd louder and more engaged. But uh, anyway, we did videos. I've got another one going up with Patrick Rogers, the uh, Nicholas Award winner. And uh, we actually had some fun uh, with some of the questions. One of them was, which I did post on my site, how do you get your news, which was, of course, morbidly depressing. As <laughs> only one player, Scott Langley, mentioned the word magazine. Everybody else uh, was all about Twitter and uh, Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. That's how they get their news. So, um, Wasn't that, that was kind of fun. Though, Shaq? I thought, sorry, just to digress, I thought that was yeah. the most interesting thing of that you'd posted all week, not, to, not disrespect yeah. to any of the other pieces. But yeah, yeah, did yeah. you ask any other players? Were they the, they the only ones you spoke to? Because I was intrigued by – they almost looked like they'd been blindsided on oh, news. Well, what news, you know? It's yeah, all just well, Twitter. It was bizarre. We did – and the other questions were uh, – one was about what stuff you download on, on uh, trips and another one was about the uh, – which I'm seeing more and more of and Clates is seeing it too, players listening to music – before a tournament round, I used to see it a lot with people practicing, and uh, now they do it so much before tournament rounds. And so we—that's actually another video we did that, that there's a compilation of, and they were kind of thrown off by that question too. So I don't—I just don't think they're used to those kinds of—I uh, mean, they're kind of softballs. But I was just trying to find out more about these, a mm. uh, different way of finding out about players. And then, of course, it was a completely selfish uh, inclusion on the news one. But uh, but I am—I am curious because so many of them. You don't really know if they're even curious to know what's going on in the news, some of the players. Um, so it was, it was nice to see that um, they at least are curious about what's going on in the world. It's just that they, the way they do it is, is very different than uh, the past. I and, mean, of course, nobody mentioned a newspaper. And any, uh, Did you uncover any state of the game listeners? Any amongst no, them? No, wow. no, no. Clates, you know this. And, Rod, you, we've dealt with it. The, to be a great golfer, you have to not be very curious. It just seems to be that's where that's why we've talked about the Phils and the Tigers and the Nicholases uh, of the world who who are uh, absorbing information are unique because uh, there there aren't a lot of them. Mm. Yeah, well, I, yeah. Sorry to digress. There. That, that was I no, that no, was no, the no. most interesting thing from the week. Of course, apart from the finish. Well, okay. Halfway through the week, we had the FBI turn up on the course. Yeah. Have you ever been yeah, in a tournament where the FBI's turned up? Shaq, that was bizarre. Uh, I think that was a first, right. as far as I know. We still don't know how they went about their appearance. Uh, we tried to get that out of Phil. He made one little slip. He said, they followed me like it said in the article. Well, the article didn't say anything about following. So we're, we're not sure if they came out on the course in sort of a cinematic way and, and you know uh, gave him a little nod and made sure he saw them and then or they tailed him out of the parking lot, and you know, I mean, I, it just was bizarre. bizarre. Uh, but it was obviously a tactic. Whether it was a tactic to get him to to turn on this guy, or whether it was because he hadn't been cooperating, or it was because they knew this article was coming out and they felt the need. But either way, to 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 show up at the at somebody's place of work, and uh, especially one as high profile as that. Now they they didn't make a as uh, the saying goes, a federal case of it. Uh, no, I don't know of anybody who saw these people and saw what happened. So he may, they may have waited for him in the parking lot and said, hey, can we go uh, have a, a cup of coffee at Starbucks and chat or something? And I think it was probably more tasteful than it sounded to a lot of people. Just a bizarre thing to have there. Clay, yeah. have ever, ever seen anybody arrested or spoken to by law enforcement on the golf course? That's a truly weird. How would you play through that? That's unbelievable. Yeah, I did. I actually managed it. Get myself almost arrested during a toilet lunch, but 
Um, Once we turn off the tape, we might get you to explain that story yeah. in more detail. Well, I'll, tell, I'll tell you that story, but it's not for here. But uh, yeah, um, no, <laughs> I yes. haven't. That aside, of course, that's the circus part of the week. But it was bizarre down the 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 last nine on Sunday, or sort of the whole last day Sunday was all a bit odd, wasn't it, Chuck? I mean, Bubba looked to have it in the bag, stood on the tenth tee, and it all looked like it was it was it was going to be his. And Adam was funny, and then everyone just sort of fell apart and. Ended up yeah. with a playoff between someone who'd finished two hours earlier and the young kitty Matsuyama, who, in fairness, is a superstar in the making. This kid has got some serious talent and uh, it was only a matter of time before he won one. But just talk us through the vibe on the course as that sort of whole couple of hours unfolded. Well, that was the only time I actually got out to the course all week and it was uh, a great atmosphere. Yeah, they have huge crowds and uh, there was not a lot of wind. There was really no wind the entire week, uh, and that is important at that course because uh, of the trees. It, uh, it gets up above the wind a little bit, and, and it has a little of that Augusta thing where it, it annoys players and they, they, they overthink uh, things. But um, I was there when Bubba hit that tee shot, and it was just a total double-cross low pull. It was just amazing that it actually went out of bounds because it went so low into the middle of the trees. And... Uh, yeah, of course. He the hilarious thing there was he <clears throat> he didn't even bother to wait to see if a marshal signaled anything. He immediately went to the bag, went for the forward, and then <laughs> now I have no idea what he was thinking. But David Faraday just kept he just started marching down the middle of the fairway, and so Bubba once he finally reteed, he teed off right over David Faraday's head, who was about he was about one ninety off the tee, and just. I went up to him after, and I said, boy, you were really clueless there. What, what, what was that all about? And he said, yeah, it was kind of a Bobby Clampin moment. Uh, he, was just, he was just marching down the fairway, and, and uh, of course, Bubba could care less. He just was so mad, and he, he hit the shot. But then after the round, Bubba was um, he was very positive, and um, he's never played well there. And so I think mostly because he's never played well there, and he finally did have a chance to win, he viewed it as a positive week. And, yeah, that's pretty – I mean, there was no sign that this was going to weigh on him, which I think is a good thing in that he's, uh, he's moving on to the next event, and I think Pinehurst is uh, mostly good for him. Mm. I don't know how much he'll get to use his driver, but uh, he, seemed, uh, he seemed unfazed. Clates, is he that sort of player, Bubba? Do you think, along with the amazing creative genius that comes with the way he plays, I suppose, is occasionally the flip side, isn't it? When it goes wrong, it can really go wrong, and he doesn't look like the sort who can perhaps recover or grind out or settle back down if it he very plays very emotionally doesn't he Bubba and perhaps once it starts going backwards that's always going to be his pattern perhaps yeah well Feldo made a pretty prescient comment on Saturday night when he said I think Bubba's going to have a big number tomorrow and he did you know he said I'm going to feel like he might make a seven or an eight somewhere and that was exactly what happened mm. so you know he's liable to Augusta gives him some space really yeah so it's not as likely to happen there as it is on a a narrower course where he can hit it off the charts occasionally. I suppose when you hit it that far, it's so hard to hit it like Ben Hogan on every hole. He hits some amazing shots though, doesn't he, Clay? I saw him hit some of the some of the wedges and whatnot. He hit into those greens, and he it looks intentional to me. He sort of spins it towards the hole. He hits it in with a little hook and gets it running sort of left to right at the hole. He's really extremely clever and just gifted in that way. Isn't he? It's a really different style of golf to what most play these days. Yeah, yeah, he's fun to watch. I mean, we watched him play. He's played in Australia quite a bit. He, he played Myrna Links a couple of times, and he, I think, in that Nationwide event, and he played the Masters at Huntingdale, and he played at the Australian Open. So I've seen him play a bit. He plays fun to watch. I mean, the Lakes he hit that eleventh. Oh yeah, <laughs> seven iron. Driver seven iron, which yeah. is, I mean, 
I remember when Steve Elkington hit it in 1992 open with a driver and a three wood, and no one could believe it. Yeah. Anyone who got on there, and 20 years later, here's a guy whacking it on with a seven iron. It was pretty amazing. It, uh, it is extraordinary. What, what was your take on Adam Clayton? So it was um, obviously he had a horrendous break at the 15th there. I mean, that pretty much closed yeah. it up for him. But he, he wasn't playing well, but it seemed to me he was really fighting. He, he kept himself in it, didn't he? I mean, even after he made the double on 12, he was still well in it. Came straight back with a birdie, and yeah. it looked like he was struggling, but it was no quit. A little bit different, perhaps. Not to say that he's he's ever given up or whatever, but he, that whole number one thing seems to have settled with him, doesn't it? He seems to feel the responsibility to play like the world number one. He does. He's such a good player. He loses a lot of tournaments, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, he wins a decent amount, but well, he loses some tournaments that he looks like he should win. And just, you know, Muirfield last year, he sort of, I mean, Mickelson obviously won that tournament, but he, he kind of slid away without much of a fight there. And he, he does that more than what, you know, obviously Lithamy did that. And, you know, Muirfield, he, he does it more than, the number one player in the world should do, probably, mm. I think. You know, he just kind of three parts or makes a big mistake and he looks better than that. He looks like he should win more than he does, which is being ultra-critical of a guy who's number one in the world and won a lot of tournaments. He's won, what, 25 tournaments, I suppose, if you count Europe and Australia. And, you know, he lost that Australian Open last year. From a, you know, he should never have lost that tournament to Rory, really. He, th- he threw that away. and So he... He, he makes more mistakes than you think he ought to, really. Mm. Although, I must say, his putting looked fabulous this week, Jack. I know he's doing that strange thing with the aim point driller, but his putting looked really good, didn't it? He was, he was good over the mid-range ones, and he holds some really yeah. good putts that perhaps yeah. we haven't expected him to hold in the past. Yeah, and the greens were a touch slower on Thursday, but by the weekend, they were brutally fast. So uh, they're scary, scary greens. They're probably the scariest outside of Augusta on the on the tour, that on the putt, PGA Tour. That putt that Nah made on the last was something else, wasn't it? I mean, it ended up forcing the playoff some hours later, but that six-footer down the hill, that looked terrifying even on TV. <clears throat> yeah, that putt's impossible. And uh, the, uh, the, the, grown, the only thing more... Uh, Incredible than the uh, the playoff groan was the groan when he made the putt in the press room, <laughs> yeah. and probably the possibly the the locker room as well. Uh, enough about that. Finally, Shaq, what's to say about McElroy? What's going on there? Sixty three in the first round and thousands in the second round. Well, I think it's a pretty simple explanation, don't you? It's the it's the don't Caroline the- <laughs> Twitter avatar change. What do you mean? He was three over the rest of the way uh, from from the the time that she put that photo up. She. Uh, She's cast a spell. Come on, Ron. Uh, no, not buying it. No, I'm not. I'm not buying that, Clates. We've seen this. This is probably the criticism you could make of McIlroy. His bad golf is too poor, isn't it? His 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 good golf is brilliant and as good as golf's ever been played. But he is capable of the big number. He did it at St Andrews a couple of years ago. Sixty three, eighty. This week, sixty three, seventy eight. Does that say anything about a player? Or is it just the usual rough and tumble of golf? And we've been spoiled by Tiger Woods going sixty three, seventy when he shoots sixty. Oh, well, the back nine at Augusta, what he shoot forty three that night too. Yeah, so he's, he shoots a lot of, well, not a lot of forty threes. He, sh- he sh- shot too many to be a t- too many for a top ten player in the world, though. Perhaps might be a fair criticism. Well, I remember Nicholas shooting forty five at Cypress Point one day. But, um, yeah, you know he's he's a flashy player who's liable to shoot forty three every now and then. But he shoots a lot of thirty twos as well. That's right. Yeah, and, and occasionally twenty eight or twenty nine. So. Uh, I suppose, I suppose it all balances out. Just finally, Shaq, Matsuyama, um, amazing talent and has been for, for a couple of years. This is really only a matter of time, wasn't it? Is, is it generally well known in America that, uh, that, that he's been sort of coming, so to speak? 
Well, everybody's so enamored with his swing, especially, but also just his game, and uh, uh, there has been that since. Uh, you know, I you know I don't get caught up too much in the next greatest player discussion stuff. It gets a little bit uh, tedious, but uh, he 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 looks uh, he looks the part. That's for sure, and. Uh, he definitely. You know, it was interesting listening to some of the the uh, analysis from one of the Japanese uh, reporters there. That he's just, you know, Rio's Rio's probably gotten a little bit caught up in being the uh, Rio Ishikawa. That is being a star, and and he puts so much time in with the press. It's absurd, and he still does. Although it's not like it used to be, and. Uh, you know that's not the case with this guy. He's a golfer, and he's serious, and and. Um, so we'll see. I, I gosh, he's just got to be in the top six or seven uh, potential winners of the U.S. Open. The way he's been playing in majors of late. Yeah, absolutely. And clayton has got the Grady pause at the top of the swing. I've never seen it. Grades is the only one I've ever seen do it. He's the second one. And he does. Yeah. Well, that's Grades has came from. He, he read a tip in a magazine from Carrie Middlecoff. I think a pause at the top of your swing, and he said, "I went and practiced for a month, and I worked this pause, and I." I spent the rest of my career hating it and trying to get rid of it. So don't read tips in magazines. Would no, be the, that's right. It worked no. all right for him, though, in fairness, didn't it, Grades? He, uh, well, he hated he, it. Boy, he hated it. He squeezed a lot out of that golf game, though, didn't he? I mean, he's uh, he really fulfilled his potential. So that was, uh, that was obviously, uh, the memorial at Muirfield at Truick Tournament. But, of course, Shaq, almost more interesting was the Monday, which is US Open sectional qualifying day right around the country in America. The huge one, obviously, in uh, Ohio, all the tour players who aren't otherwise in. This is one of... The great days in golf, really, isn't it? It's one of the, the really democratic days of golf. You see Justin Leonard, I think, qualified. 1997 British Open winner. The names you see in these sections are amazing, aren't they? Guys you would assume are in the tournament yeah. who aren't, and they, they have to go and make the effort to play 36 holes in a day. Uh, and it was a good one yesterday, wasn't it? There were some good stories. Yeah, well, you know, we always love the, uh, the, the, the younger players or the really older players who make it, I think. I mean, I just love, uh, like, the California one, Alex Cheka, and then an 18-year-old from Stanford. Mm-hmm. Uh, whose father we actually had on, I think it was this show, uh, Scott McNeely. The, uh, he had that uh, golf, uh, oh, what was it, flog golf or um, it was, oh, you know. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Remember yeah. him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He major, major Silicon Valley yeah, figure. Yeah, oh, that's right. And that's his son, Maverick McNeely, who, uh, who, he, who, he, who was kind of taken, I think, at, to Stanford because of uh, a little bit of his dad. And uh, he was a very good player, but he wasn't quite on the level of some of the guys they recruited so people kind of rolled their eyes and went, what's that about well gosh he just he, i mean he literally was one of the uh, key guys on their team all year and then he goes and he qualifies for the US Open so uh we had a yeah we had an incorrect scorecard signing and and that was bizarre and the the, the young man was on the golf channel today i posted the video which was amazing uh, to see that interview he handled it absolutely beautifully uh, Eric Compton, of course, is just an amazing story. Go out and just going out and playing thirty-six holes and then mm-hmm. doing it at that level is incredible. Um, Why doesn't uh, he get the press, Shaq? It is genuinely the most remarkable story, probably on the tour, and yet he just doesn't get the press <clears throat> that the story deserves. It seems. Yeah, it is a strange one because you point him out to somebody who, and I've done it a couple times, and I'll say, "Hey, by the way, you know, he's he's working on his." Uh, third heart i believe uh, and they go yeah right yeah and they laugh and it's mind-boggling isn't it it, it is. Really is yeah it is mind-boggling i you know it's he's so nice he mm. is so accessible that maybe that's a problem maybe he needs to be more mysterious and uh and he needs to get into fights on twitter with his wife or something <laughs> and have her you know casting spells but it is an amazing story and maybe i i think if he wins the tour event but 
Jeez, um, he's good enough. There's no doubt he, about it. He's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's seriously. I'm forgetting another. There was one other uh, really outstanding. Oh, well, this kid who I think this is going to be really fun. A uh, 17-year-old from Indiana. Uh, excuse me, from Ohio. Um, who shot 59 at Pinehurst last year has qualified. And I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Mm. That's uh, pretty incredible. He, he obviously likes the golf course. Yeah. Clates, it's funny the US Open, isn't it? The tournament itself, probably certainly in Australia, isn't considered the premier of the four majors. I mean, we tend to lean towards the Open Championship. But this part of the US Open is fabulous. This democratic nature of the, the qualifying. It's the same for the Open Championship, but in the US it just seems to have a, a different feel. You would have played in some qualifiers over your time, I'd imagine. Are they a bit of a weird tournament for a touring profession? Is it 36 holes, no crowds, no purse, just sort of an odd thing to play in? Yeah, they used to have the... Sunday, Monday qualifying at the Open every year, which was a big deal. It's it's a pity it's gone, really. I mean, everyone, well, no one loved it, but it was an interesting couple of days. You would play the Scottish Open the week before, well, the, the day before, and drive to the qualifying site overnight and tee up on Sunday, and of course, you'd never seen them play. And so it was, um, it was an interesting time, and it was, I mean, it's, they get a better field now. They have the, the international qualifiers all over the world, and it makes a bit more sense, but. Um, loses yeah, something, but, doesn't it? It's not it's, quite the same. In some ways, it's a pity that's gone. It was kind of fun to, mm. and it was. I mean, in a sense, it was. There was only pressure really at the end if you had a chance to make it. I mean, you would do a hundred guys to hundred and twenty guys teeing up for fifteen spots. So the chances were you weren't going to make it. So you kind of played with that sort of sense really, which I found made it easier, not harder. And what about some of the guys who'd turn up in those fields, Clates? Like, you know, I mean, there's some big names in the US Open section of quality. Did you ever come across that so much in the Open Championship? Guys that, you know, major wins or whatever, aren't automatically exempt, making the effort to turn up to a qualifier? I think Ben Crenshaw played one year. Wow. I remember VJ playing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are always, yeah. you know, decent players. I'm, I think in the US, there are, it's staggering the guys who have to play the qualifying. Mm. I mean, Lee Jansen, the guy, won the thing twice. He's played. I mean, that that would yeah, that, that's okay. that, that never happened in the British Open. I mean, <laughs> and you, you know, you're exempt for life if you win the British Open, essentially. Yeah, so. but I, I'm I'm glad he's not exempt. Yeah. I mean, uh, there there's people that would take up spot. I'd much rather see some 17 year old qualify yeah. or Alex Cheka or you know, these other people that are on the cusp. But it is amazing sometimes when you see that. It is um, beautifully democratic, isn't it? I, yeah, you know, it's that, ju- I think it's the best. It's just awesome, and uh, there must be a smidgen of humility in being like a Lee Jansen and having to go to qualifying shack, which I think is a healthy thing, don't you reckon? Yeah, it's funny though. People like Tom Kite and da- Davis Love played yesterday. I saw a photo of him in shorts. They, yeah. um, they, they don't. They seem to. It's almost a point of pride for them that they are prepared. Um, they, 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 there are players who buy into the beauty of the U.S. Open. As we know, though, there are a lot of players now who are just so used to getting exempt and everything because of a world ranking, and it's sort of a, a shock to the system that they have to do this, which is why we see uh, – and I'd love to know what Clates thinks uh, of this uh, WD stuff. I, I haven't looked at yesterday, but just seeing on Twitter uh, how many players throw in the towel – um, and withdraw, and I, I just find that I, I understand why they do it. They play a lot of golf; it's a long year. But um, one, I'm always amazed how quickly they give up, but also just um, how, how sometimes how rude it is. You hear these stories of a guy going back out in the afternoon by uh, you know, and, and having to wait all day. I mean, part of it is just common courtesy to help somebody who is in contention have a better flow of their round and. 
I mean, it happens at the at the uh, Open Championship and the U.S. Open. It's always the guys who are regular tour member players who are doing it. Yeah, did, yeah, did Charles Howell pull out for the fifth time in six years? I think or something. Else. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's got to be a point where the where where the these bodies just say you can't you you get a year off if you you reach a certain number of WDs or something. I'm not sure what the answer is. That's part of the problem, but uh, it just seems so so uh, especially the worst to me is the open uh, the U.S. Open qualifier in Europe where they usually play somewhere really good. Uh, Sunningdale this year, right? Old and new was it? Uh. Walton Heath, wasn't it? Oh, Walton Heath. I'm sorry. Walton Heath. uh, And you'd think they would just enjoy getting to play a great course sometimes, but I guess not. Don't be silly. Don't be silly. Come on. Just on a tangent on that Walton Heath, one of the guys I work with at Golflink, his dad lives not far from Walton Heath, and and they've had it there for the last few years, apparently. Every year he turns up and volunteers as a marshal, and he he said to Craig the other day, it's amazing, I've been doing this for five years and, and you know, none of the guys I've ever sort of marshaled, none of them have ever got through. And then sort of a moment later in the conversation, he reveals that all he does is talk to them on the way around. Craig says, <laughs> do you think maybe that's got something to do with it? If you just shut up and let them play, they might have a chance to get through. Speaking uh, of that, um, I see Huggy wrote a terrific article on Michael Campbell in Goldfield this week. Oh, I'll have to read that. I haven't seen that. Michael Campbell made a six-footer at... Walton Heath to qualify the year he won at Pinehurst. Oh. Yeah. And he's not playing at Pinehurst this year, which is kind of sad, but sad. reflective of his, the state of his mm. life and game at the moment. I yeah. think getting divorced and living in the south of Spain and not playing. and oh, Bizarre, play, what, bizarre what, character, Clates. And, and I, I would not – this year has – that the way the year has gone, the way the top players are playing, uh, just all the strangeness. I, I would not be surprised if the winner at Pinehurst uh, is a – is a qualifier, uh, somebody like that? I really wouldn't. Mm. Well, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to watch it unfold there. Uh, sorry, just completely distracted there for a moment. That's yes, okay. It will be good to see it unfold at Pinehurst. At which point, I think it's probably a good time to bring in our guest for today, yeah. Chris Buey. Enjoy a little bit of thinking music while I get Chris on the line. We'll be back in just a tick with Chris Buey and his book, The Early Days of Pinehurst. <laughs> And thanks for staying with us. Time for our special guest for this episode, Chris Buey. Chris is a longtime resident of the Pinehurst area. He's intimately familiar with not only the Pinehurst Resort, but the area's many other golf courses as well. The story of how this sandy part of what was once considered one of the backwoods of America became such a golfing mecca is a fascinating one. And Chris has captured the essence of the tale with great style and insight. And he joins us now to chat about his new book, The Early Days of Pinehurst. Chris, uh, welcome to the show. Fabulous read. I must start by congratulating you. It's a terrific effort. Well, thank you for that, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. No, not at all. Did I get that? You are a long-time resident of Pinehurst, I hope. I didn't make that up, did I? <laughs> yeah, that is true. Yeah, I um, grew up here mainly, and fortunate to have all these golf courses around, so uh, naturally we all got absorbed in the game and uh, went out in the world, and later in life I decided that uh, you know the tranquil atmosphere of this area was uh, suited me just right. So, well, from reading uh, came, reading the book, Chris, it truly is a golf, um, almost a spiritual golf area. Pinehurst. I, I've always been aware of Pinehurst, but from this side of the world, didn't realise just quite how strong the ties are with golf in that part of the world. Yeah, it's um, that really, especially in the first half of the twentieth century, it was that was all about golf and that came about happenstance. They had, they didn't plan it. And then 
as it turned out, uh, people would just start hitting golf balls around. So they said, well, we better give them an area to hit. And so it just grew exponentially from there. And it, yeah, it became a destination. In fact, the beginnings of golf are a fabulous and quite funny story, aren't they? Tell us how uh, James Tufts, I think, was the founder of Pinehurst. He'd had he'd had a go at turning into two different things that had both been phased before golf came to it. How did the golf notion come to him? Well, uh, as you were saying, the the first couple of ideas that he had uh, went out the window, which was, you know, it would be hard to take if you built a whole town, you know, based on a resort for, you know, a health thing. And so that went out. Uh, they were going to have a peach empire that got destroyed. So he didn't really know what he was going to do. And a farmer came in and said, you know, some of your guests are annoying my cows out here with the, I don't know what they're doing, but there's like hitting balls around on with the sticks, you know, could you please do something about that? So he went down there and decided that, you know, they better, you know, give them a proper area. And so they put nine holes there. Um, it's actually right where the pros are going to be hitting um, in the practice area now. Oh. Uh, US Open. Yeah, that all nine holes were right in that area. So the game just became, you know, it, it just took off. Everybody just loved the game, and so every year they had to keep adding more and more courses. And uh, But it all originated from a farmer being annoyed uh, that his cows were being bothered. Being bothered by people hitting balls with a stick. Clates, that's a very golf kind of story, isn't it? There's something wonderfully golf about that, isn't it? <laughs> These crazy people are hitting balls around yeah. and upsetting my cows. And from that, you know, here we are, um, you know, 100 and something years later, and it's going to host one of the big, biggest events on earth. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's a great day. Yeah, What's yeah that was a... Uh... The auspicious opening of Pinehurst, yeah. yeah indeed. So. And, of course, Chris, in the book it goes on to explain how quickly um, the game sort of took hold in this part of the world. And I was quite surprised to read about queues forming, that they had to keep building course because people were queuing up to play the game. What was the state of golf at that? We're talking sort of the early 1900s here, aren't we? What was the state of the game generally around the place? Or was it only in this part of America that it was really sort of booming as a, a recreation? Well, I tell you, Jeff could probably give you a better answer as far as the the country. There were, um, you know, certainly courses in um, Long Island uh, with National Golf Links, but Pinehurst um, it just became this destination, and it was they had to keep building courses. The Pinehurst people built uh, pine needles and mid pines as well because they were turning away like 10,000 people a year at one point. I mean, it was that, it was, it's really hard to picture these days, but that was the case. I mean, they just, they were eager to play. And I'll tell you one thing about that, because they had so many people there, Donald Ross and um, Henry Phones, who designed Oakmont, they did a study of how long it takes to play number two with a foursome because they wanted to make sure that, you know, people kept up. And their conclusion was that a foursome to be able to play number two in two hours and 40 minutes. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you want to understand why there's not, they're not queuing up to play the game, that might be a part of the reason right there. Although you're not I thought of, I might get yeah. to the uh, USGA and see if they wanted to enact that in this open. Yeah. But, uh, you might want to I think maybe some, not. Give them some of the distances they were hitting it back then too, Chris, and see if they might be able to do something about that. Tufts himself, the guy who founded Pinus. Do we know, did he play golf? What was his connection with the game before the, 
the farmers' cows were annoyed? Well, the, the first Tufts, uh, James Tufts, who founded it, um, it was kind of an altruistic adventure for um, people of moderate means from New England to come down. And he, he wasn't really, you know, any particular golf enthusiast. He was just trying to provide stuff for the resort. Now, all the, the fantastic stuff that Donald Ross did was under uh, his son, who was named Leonard uh, Tufts. He went to MIT, which is like the Harvard of technical schools here. It's, you know, the top school in the United States. But he went down, and it was under his um, offices that Donald Ross did all his magic here. And that was, he deserves a huge amount of credit because uh, Donald Ross changed number two like every year for like 30 plus years. I mean, and most owners would not be entirely happy to have somebody radically changing their course for three decades, but. He he was a very very smart man. He ran the whole thing, and he was, uh, you know, he has a big part to do with the number two story. But all of the, all the magic that Ross did was under Leonard Tufts, who was the founder's son. You know, we could talk about Pinehurst and number two all day, and it'll get plenty of uh, it'll get plenty of. Yeah. Uh, oh, seems we've lost Clates. You with it? You back with us, Clates? Jack, are you with us? Yeah. I'm yeah. Here. Okay. Oh, yeah. Ah, Clay, you are back. Sorry about that. Technical issues. You can't have a show without technical issues, Chris. It's the way it works. Uh, Pinehurst number two, we could do an hour podcast just about that course itself, obviously, Chris. But I suppose, in many ways, the the real importance of number two and and the Pinehurst Resort was what it launched in the area, this sort of thirst for golf and all this work that Ross did and created this cradle of extraordinary golf around the place. So instrumental in in the game, isn't it? It, What number two sort of launched in that part of the world? Or two, um, and well, all the courses that they had here. But I, I think probably the most significant part was a lot of people came here that were uh, sort of the leaders in other communities, and they came here. Um, this was before uh, American uh, towns had their own golf courses, and so they came here and they said, "Well, you know, we have to have our own course." And so that's how it happened that Donald Ross ended up building. around 400 courses uh, in the United States, you know, California, Florida, Maine, just all over the place. But that's how that happened. And so I think the, you know, even greater significance than the fact that Pinehurst became the cradle of it was the fact that American culture was, you know, was shifted a bit because now you've got these golf clubs and country clubs all over the United States, which is pretty raw country at the time, so it had sort of a civilizing effect um, on the country. So to me, that was, you know, really, as much as Ross did in this area, the fact that the country's culture was altered a bit um, was, you know, just a phenomenal achievement. Mm. Shaq, could we say, realistically, Pinehurst perhaps was the first golf destination where the purpose of going to a place was for golf? Do you think the, the ties are that strong? At least in America, and I think that's what Chris's book kind of brings together. And then, uh, uh, and then it was also uh, what, what I got more out of his book was how it brought a lot of architects uh, there and thinking about certain things more than I think a lot of us realized. Um, you know, is that correct, Chris? Absolutely. Yeah. What's interesting is that um, 
Henry Phones uh, lived just one door down from uh, Donald Ross, uh, right there near where the, the uh, community church is. And uh, about a block away was Robert Hunter, who uh, was Alistair McKenzie's uh, design partner out there on Cyprus and other places. And also Walter Travis, who uh, was a great but he, he did a lot of architecture work. Um, the, all of these guys were together, so it was a kind of a think tank. I mean, they in that early mm. part, they were, you know, it was a very, very small place. They knew each other really well. Mm. And, I mean, to be sitting in on those conversations would be something. So I think, I think Jeff, you're right. I think, the you know, they're putting their minds together had a far-reaching effect that I don't think is... Uh, been realized or acknowledged. No, we focus more on the Philadelphia area and C.B. McDonald, but as you detail yeah. in your book, and and you're careful not to, uh, to because it's so hard to, to know what, but when there are all these people in the same area at the same time, you just have right. to assume that they, <laughs> they were... They were discussing oh, yeah. these things, and right, Clates. I mean, it's just it's 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 not. I don't think it's a leap to I don't to to assume that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Oh, it uh, it would be hard for. I mean, what are they going to talk about? You know. I'm yeah, sure. yeah, they're not talking about the weather. Yeah, no, you'd, you'd you'd talk shop, Clates. You you obviously but you've been part of a collaboration, Barn Boogle, with with Tom Doak. Is it a better result when architects get together and talk generally about the game and air their thoughts? It's a bit like a think tank, isn't it? Those sorts yeah, of things. Terrific. I mean, Pine Valley obviously was one of those. Yeah, it's always great when architects get together and thrash things out. It doesn't happen often enough, but mm. the, the interesting thing, if you have a discussion about in Australia about the most influential Australian golfers of all time, mostly no one's ever heard of Walter Travis, let alone realise what he did, yeah. which was when the first Australian-born major championship winner in magazines and golf, you know, the Schnecktedy putter and golf writer and player and architect, and, and I hadn't realised he'd been a pioneer at all, so it was another significant thing he did. And took up the game, what, in his 30s, if I recall? Yeah, he was born only, you know, an hour's drive from where I am in Melbourne. He was born in Malden, a little village, kind of an hour north of Melbourne, and didn't play golf in Australia ever, but no. boy, he, he turned into an incredibly significant figure in American golf. Yeah, well, in the golf media in particular, Chris, I think you've got a couple of, of um, extracts from various essays he wrote in the American golfer. That was probably one of his biggest... Uh, sort of contributions, wasn't it? it was in, in the golf media, that American Golfer magazine that he edited and, and wrote some amazing stuff in over the years. Absolutely. He was a, he was a titan in the world of golf. He hasn't gotten uh, recognition that he's due. And the fact that he's Australian. Um, so, yeah, well, he was, he was <laughs> a phenomenal player. He was, um, I think, the first foreigner to win the British Amateur, uh, which was a big deal. And he he had he had a a lot of different things that he did with the game of golf, and he was he was quite a quite a character. And his magazine was you know to this day some people will still tell you it was the best that was ever put out. So well, it, it's definitely an unrecognized um, contribution to the world of golf. Indeed. So so what we've got sort of Pinehurst as this hub, Chris. Tell us some of the highlights that have come out of of that. I think you describe it as such, almost a, 
you know, the the inexplicable accident of a whole bunch of people being in a certain place at a certain time and things come together and things happen. Tell us a little bit some of the things that we've gotten from that that we still have today because Pinehurst still is a, a golfing mecca. Isn't it? I know that there's been criticism of some of the courses in the area, but there is a lot of Ross gems there, isn't there, and, and wonderful things to yeah. learn about the game. Yeah, there's um... – they both, I mean, Leonard Tops and Ross left, you know, to me, it was an uh, extraordinary thing that they had the four courses there at Pinehurst. And um, as Clates will tell you, when you're designing, I mean, you have to have balance on the 18 holes, you know. Well, they had balance on 72 holes. It was really an extraordinary achievement. And and those have been modified. Um, some of them, number two is... Uh, largely retained its character. Uh, but if you go to Pine Needles and Mid Pines, uh, you'll find, you know, just fabulous golfing, especially Mid Pines now, as Jeff knows, is just phenomenally restored. I mean, unbelievably artfully restored by Kyle Franz. Also, uh, Southern Pines is a under-recognized. Southern Pines Golf Club is just really fascinating land. Yeah. Um, there. Uh, also, there's the, the course. Um, one chapter in the book is about uh, a place called Overhills. Which yeah, is tell a us private... about that. That's a great story. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. They, uh, Bill Fields' uh, article just came out today in um, Golf, Golf World. Yeah. yeah, today. He and I went out there a couple of weeks ago, something like that. Well, they gave, it was, what they did, they got Donald Ross, they gave him 3,500 acres of perfect golfing land that's right beside Pinehurst. They gave him a blank check. They said, do whatever you want. The only requirement that we have is that we, have, we want to have a golf course that has no superior. So I've got two sets of revisions by him, and they are extremely detailed. I mean, the, the bunker heights are measured to the inch. <clears throat> it was a highly thought-out course. Now, in 1913, it had a 585-yard par five. The back nine was over 3,500 yards long. It was a it was a big course. Um, so it's there now. It's just kind of overgrown. They they do prescribe burns, and so the corridors are still there. It could be restored, and uh, we're trying to make that happen because the quality of the course is really extraordinary. I mean, it, it is. If you go out there. Uh, you will see what I mean. It could be, you know, at least as good as Mid Pines and probably better. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting story. It goes on and on. Clates, it sounds a lot like Elliston, doesn't it? Blank check, huge piece of property. Build yeah. me something that's hard. Yeah, 80,000 acres at Elliston, but yeah, it does. It's, uh, yeah. it's extraordinary stuff. One of the things you talk about in the book, the book, Chris, with some of the golf clubs is the amazing job that um, the town has done in protecting the golf courses. I think it was Southern Pines Golf Club at one point, they wanted to put a freeway through uh, and that wasn't allowed to happen. We've seen the great restoration work at number two and you've mentioned the restoration work at Mid Pines. Does all this give hope that perhaps the Overhills course, that the attitude in the place, that the, perhaps Pinehurst is starting to realise as a town what it is that they have, what an asset they have? Might we see Overhills perhaps come back? Is that a realistic possibility? It, it is within the realm of possibility. I, I you know, it'd be hard to put a percentage um, number on it. I mean, it can happen, and it's part of a military base now. I know a lot of the guys that work there, and I would have never 
advocated, you know, for its restoration. If they hadn't told me that uh, they didn't, they didn't really need this particular area. It's in like a cul-de-sac of the northern corner, so it's really out of the way. And the base itself is about a third the size of Rhode Island, so this is colossal place, and we're talking about like you know 400 acres in a corner. So, as far as recognizing all that stuff, I think people the they didn't quite understand what they had on their hands. You know, after Donald Ross passed away and we moved into the second part of the 20th century, I I don't think they realized exactly what it was, and so that's exactly what I was trying to do in the book was to, you know, illuminate, you know, how brilliant it was. And so You're such a Southern gentleman. That's <laughs> you've said that so much nicer than I could ever say. It. Uh, yeah, that's lots of reading. Believe me, I, I said it the wrong way many times. And so it's been, yeah, me to, uh, yeah. Do, do no, you that's what you do really well in the book, by the way, you, you, you point out, the, the 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 lousy evolution of some of these courses, but in a very nice way, in a way that will not uh, make people dig in and say, "Oh no, no, it's just fine the way it is." You 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 just lay out what was there and with photos and and uh, and that's that's. Um, I wish I uh, Clates and I could probably learn from that uh, <laughs> your tactfulness. Well, there was a lot of uh, restraint that went on. I tell you, oh, I, I mean, bet. There were, yeah, and the, there were certain words that I wanted to use here and there. Yeah, and. I thought, uh, well, maybe not. So I think I get the point across, you know, I mean, so we'll see. Definitely. Well, you can help me co-write another book and we'll be more explicit if this doesn't yeah. do the trick. Do, <laughs> so. do you sense that this, that, that this notion of restoring, you know, what has been um, kind of ruined in a lot of ways at a lot of places over the last sort of 30, this, this notion of restoration with the number two and the spotlight that's going to be, do you see that continuing do you see some of those things that you had to be restrained about being undone on the back of what's happened at number two and at Mid Pines, Chris? Is there a general movement? I guess that's part of the same question I was asking about overhills. Is there a general movement? Is the town, is the, is the, the whole area realizing that they kind of have it would be to their own benefit to fix some of the mistakes that have been made? Well, I think that the the people that um, are running the place certainly um, want to do the right thing. Um, there's a new uh, president coming in of Pinehurst um, called uh, Tom Pashley, and I know that yeah. he, he understands these things, and I know that he wants to do the right thing. Um, the like members or towns folks, I'm not sure if they're how aware they are. Now, the response that the course number two gets during these tournaments, you know, whether it receives a lot of praise, you know, the response that it gets will you know, have a huge influence on the um, direction that, you know, the area will take uh, after that. I mean, right now, the zeitgeist is to move toward, as, you know, Mid Pines would not have happened without number two having mm -hmm. that. And so, you know, there can be a domino effect. And But my point is, you know, just you you got to recognize that these gems are here. I mean, they were kind of taken for granted. And so the question is, you know, how do you want to present them? And, you know, why, why would we not want to present them in the best way possible? And uh, so, we, you know, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. There's a word that comes up in the book, and Chuck, I wanted to ask you about this. It comes up a couple of times, and I really love the idea of this word in relation to golf and when they're talking about golf courses, and it's sporty. Seems to have been in vogue yeah. uh, sort of in the earlier part of – Last century, uh, Chris, where you know golf courses were described as sporty, or holes were described 
as sporty, which is just conjures up fabulous images, doesn't it, Shaq? But talk to us a bit about what – Chris is obviously too nice. Talk to us about what needs to happen at Pinehurst. What have been some of the mistakes that need to be fixed in that area, Shaq? Because obviously you, I'm assuming you've been there many times. It sounds like – a bit like the sand belt of Melbourne. It is just golf paradise um, not being fully realised at this point. Well, the land is golf paradise, but <clears throat> outside of uh, mid-pines and number two – um, you have some, some just incredibly mediocre courses when you consider uh, the quality of the land and the soil. And when, then when you read something like what Chris has done and, and uh, some of the other books, uh, Richard Mandel and uh, all these people, Lee Pace, who, who documented uh, the way the place once was, it, it just, it's, you, it's horrifying to look at some of these things. And they, you know, they've had... I mean, the, the number four course that Fazio's done is just is beautiful property. It's just abhorred stuff. I popped over there when I was walking around number two, and I just got irritated after a few minutes and left. And um, and uh, and then you have the the Reese Jones, and I mean, they've, they've just had a lot of uh, very poor efforts there. And so I, I hope, like Chris said, I hope that this is a uh, is is a moment that changes things because that should be. Um, the, the the whole vibe of the place when you go there, the village, the uh, the the way that the the whole land plan works, it's just this great little heavenly place, and um, and it should have golf course design to match the brilliance of the architecture of the the land plan and the and the Carolina the hotel and the village is just uh, it's so good and it's so appreciated by people and loved and yet when it comes to the golf architecture as we know all the time for whatever reason the love of all that that old feel and and the things and the charm uh, that you get out of these places for whatever reason people don't want that with the golf they want the golf manicured and and uh with lakes and and junk and stuff that just doesn't belong in a place like that so um that's the hope, and I, I think it will take a lot of time. It took a lot of time to undo the the great work that was done, and it'll take a lot of time. It was a huge sales job just to do the number two, and I think it was um, admirable that they did it, and I know they met with a lot of resistance. So well, as, it's, Rand, uh, as Rand told us just yeah. a couple of weeks ago, Rand Morris said, Clates, on a, on a broader picture, it makes this U.S. Open so important in a lot of ways, doesn't it? Because we're going to see a US Open course very different to what we're used to seeing. And in some ways, this is going to be a, a kind of a watershed moment for golf course architecture. If Pinehurst number two goes over well with what Cor and Crenshaw have done and, and the reviews are good, perhaps this is the direction we'll start to move more. Um, it becomes quite important, doesn't it? This, and it's educating people about golf course architecture and its importance, isn't it? Well, it's about short grass being a hazard as opposed to you know the dreaded curse of long grass I mean short grass is such a great hazard and Pinehurst will be better exemplified than anywhere except you know rural Melbourne where it's you know if you, if you miss the green knee you don't get jammed up in a, under a veranda of rough you just run away 30 yards down a bank and you play it back up the hill so, so it's all about short grass as a hazard and sand and width and space and all the things we love but all the things that were I've never been a part of the US Open, really, so in that sense, it is important. Mm. But more importantly, it'll be fun to watch. It'll be fascinating to watch it. Mm. Yeah. The golf will be interesting, which is the key, I think you've said a couple of times. We touched on this when we spoke to Rand Clades. You played it 
uh, number two. I think it was two years ago you went to the States. Was it the year the Open? Was yeah. it Marion? From it memory? Baba Ustazen. It was Friday of the Baba Ustazen Masters. Masters. So okay, so 2012. Uh, did you get around to any of the other courses in here? And what was your take on Pinehurst, the area? Did, is it the sort of place where you're kind of wandering and you know you're in a golf town? I mean, we drove up from Augusta that morning and drove back that night, so we didn't have a lot of, a lot of time. We had dinner in the town. It was fantastic. Yeah, I couldn't believe how small it was. I mean, it's, a, it's like going to... In Melbourne, it's like kind of a place called Porsche at the bottom end of the Mornington Peninsula. It's a tiny little town. It was tremendous. And not, not a dissimilar area. I suppose the Mornington Peninsula is the big kind of out-of-city place to play golf in, in Australia, really. Mm. So, well, so. the other thing... And it's like what Jeff Ogilvie described with with uh, North Berwick or Gullen. The, 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 uh, you can walk with your golf clubs or, or talk about being a golfer and and you, you don't have to be ashamed. It's part of the culture there and part yeah. of the whole scene. Is that and is that true with Southern Pines as well, Chris? Well, Southern Pines um, is really uh, more of an equestrian community. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of like Olympians and whatnot here. At the beginning... There used to be a lot more back and forth. I mean, they had a, a lot of equestrian stuff in Pinehurst, a lot of golf stuff in Southern Pines, so it went back and forth. But now it's um, Pinehurst is, you know, golf, and Southern Pines, other than um, Mid Pines and Southern Pines Golf Club, is uh, uh, it's an equestrian community, really. So, and uh, Boy, so they mixed together. Sorry, we're talking real first world here, aren't we? We're <laughs> splitting our time between golf and a question. Yeah. What a, what a fabulous place. It, it reminds me, Chris, of a passage in the book, which I must ask you about, which intrigued me no end. I think it was the right. number five course at, at one point was closed for financial reasons, but they were allowed right. to play archery golf. And there was a yeah, report they, in one of the papers that I think Ross himself had taken part in an archery golf thing on the course. Tell us a bit about that. This intrigued me. Mm. Well, they, uh, you know, as usual, they they just built courses as fast as they could because, you know, they kept turning away people. So they started building Pinehurst uh, Number no. Five in 1928, and it was opened. And the depression came, so they had to to close it down. And you know, I think they were kind of desperate at the time, and you know, they weren't going to maintain it as a golf course. So they thought, well, we'll do archery here. So Donald did go out there with uh, Frank Maples, who was his right hand man. And they played. I I have a feeling Donald did it reluctantly, but out of a sense of duty to try to help the resort. Uh, but the most throw the game. That's right. Well, <laughs> sorry. The nineteen twenties version of big hole golf. Yes. Yeah, so. Exactly. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the uh, the significant part of that is that the fourth and fifth holes of number two, the fifth hole, which is the best hole in the course. Um, came from that course. It, w it was absorbed into today's routing back in the 1930s, and they got rid of some holes that um, actually are under a lake <laughs> on number four course now. So the real significance of number five course was that, you know, the fourth and fifth holes, which are great holes, especially the fifth hole, are part of it. And now if the Depression hadn't come, then those holes, you know, there would have been a different 18-hole course. So... Um, these yeah. little things happen all the way through the history of Pinehurst, don't they, Chris, from reading the book? These little things that all sort of conspire to and hardships that in the end make the whole so much better than the sum of its parts. That It's quite uh, there amazing, isn't it? Innumerable. The, um, you guys okay there? Yeah, the yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, shoot, I forgot what I was going to say. But, um, yeah, there were a lot of different things. Now, the one thing that was curious was they could not get grass to grow until about 1915. So for from 1898 to about 1915, it was the grass was so bad that you could lose your golf ball in the middle of the fairway because it was sandy. I mean, they tried everything. Now, they were advised by pros to just make the fairway sand and roll them and just go with that. And, you know, these guys, year after year, they were out there trying this and that, just unbelievable persistence. Um, ultimately, they did, you know, get the fairways um, in shape, And uh, but it wasn't until the 30s that they had the greens. Now, one of the ways that they kept the fairways in shape was that they would pin in cows on the fairway. So, I mean, I don't know if you can imagine taking an overnight train to Pinehurst in 1922 with all this great advertising about how fabulous it was, and then you get there and there's like cows in the fairway or whatever. So that would have been, you know, just all kinds of, you know, little bits and pieces in there. It was a pretty colorful story all around. So Indeed, and it, yeah. it tells us something about the roots of the game that we do tend to forget, and Clates, I'm sure you come across this all the time, where courses in the modern day, for the most part, tend to be judged on how they look and how they're maintained, as opposed to what's on the ground. That didn't seem to be the case back. The expectation of perfect presentation wasn't there. To the betterment of the game, it seems, that you know, when the courses were produced sort of rough and ready, and that's how they were presented, that maybe that's part of what this sporty look is about, Clates, do you think? Well, you're right, there's an obsession with um, conditioning of golf courses. Most people comment on when you ask them how a golf course was, they'll tell you what great condition it was in or what terrible condition it was in. So, yeah, this, it was about, well, it's, golf's obviously about way more than that. Mm. Fun. Sport is a great word. Fun's a great word. I mean, you know, we, not something you would describe the US Open ever. And it might be fun next to the guy because it's a really difficult golf course, but it'll, it'll be interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, It'll be fun to watch. I'm not necessarily. But Jeff, you've got that great quote on your side about Tom Weisskopf. You know, people want to play in the US Open. They really, what well, they actually don't want to play in the US Open. They just want to be good enough to play in the US Open. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of my all-time favorites. We must get Tom Weisskopf on the show. I'm going to stop saying that at some point. Probably when we, uh, when. Although he would, he would really want to play this US Open. I mm. think that's what's so funny is uh, the last Open at Pinehurst would have been exactly the kind of. Uh, dreadful thing that he would have uh, uh, been talking about, and now I think that anybody with a, an imagination is going to love this because um, we're going to not only the recovery shots out of the sand, but it's just I, I feel like the the way they restored it's going to take less of an of the emphasis on the greens that players tend to have and the obsession and and irritation with them, just because they used to. Yeah, they they were used to hitting out of Bermuda rough in the last two opens there, mm. um, but I don't know. We'll see. Chris, what are, what are your sort of expectations, and what's the feeling like? Obviously, it's only what ten or twelve days away now before the U.S. Open really kicks in. We're back to back. We've got the men's and then the women's. What's the feeling like and the atmosphere like around the place at the moment? And what are you expecting to perhaps see, or what are you looking forward to seeing? We asked Rand Morris at the same question a couple of weeks ago. What are you looking forward to seeing? at the, this U.S. Open next week, with all of the knowledge that you have of particularly number two and the area in general? Right. Well, yeah, the, uh, you know, it's happened before, but, you know, it's a groundswell of uh, enthusiasm and everybody's just delighted that it's going to be here. It starts to get more exciting as it gets closer. Um, so everybody's happy about that. And a lot of things have been worked on. 
you know, like in the community, getting the roads and all this sort of thing. But as far as the course, um, it's, I think it's just going to be fascinating to watch. I mean, it's just a whole different thing. And so I don't, I don't think I've, I've heard a lot of different theories about what's going to happen, but I think one of the great things is that it's, you know, we don't know how it's going to play, you know, these guys out in wire grass and all this kind of thing. And so, you know, there's a, a lot of times if you watch a tournament, you, you really don't see too much variety, you know, and you pretty much know what's going to happen. You know, it's either this guy or that guy's going to win, but this one should be adventurous. It should be interesting. Um, you know, a lot of different things can happen and, and we don't know what's going to happen. I, and for me, I mean, the question mark just makes it all the more intriguing. So I, I'm just highly looking forward to it. I, I can't wait to see it. Shaq Rand said to us when we spoke to him that, the other week, that the thing he's looking forward to seeing is watching players play for the edges of fairways to set up angles and things. What should the the less educated among us to teach ourselves? What, what should we be looking for when we watch the tournament next week and what and what the players are doing that perhaps we don't get to see week to week? And that's one thing that sort of sounds interesting to me. I'll, I'll certainly be looking out for that. You know, watching for players to trying trying to set up angles by by taking on the edges of the fairways. That's what makes interesting golf, isn't it? What are some of the other things that perhaps we might be looking for? Well, I hope that happens. I'm not entirely sure I'm <laughs> sold that it will. Um, it is uh, pretty wide, and there are when you watch the flyovers, you see these different hole locations that, uh, but, uh, that, that require that, but they all hit it so far, and there's several holes that have uh, pinch points, if you will, and that, so I, that's where I get I, – I hope he's right. I really do, but I don't know. They just, they just hit the ball so far that it <laughs> – Although on the other hand, we may see some some people try some strategic uh, things that Donald Ross never could have imagined. Sometimes those are a lot of fun, but um, I, I I that's really to me the most uh, uh, probably the only thing that we we aren't sure about what we'll see. Everything else is just uh, it's just fun to watch. Uh, might be a little goofy at times to some people when somebody's going back and forth on a green, uh, and then of course the the recovery shots I think are. Mm. Are uh, from the sandy areas are just. I think what when you watch those, it'll be fun to see if there are players who try to recover and to a spot as opposed to trying to play it to a green. Because I think the more they try to play it to the greens, the more they just get into trouble. And there's so many greens out there where long is absolutely just death, and that's probably where where you can really rack up a big number. Mm. Clates, having played there, obviously length at the US Open is always an issue. They lengthen the course, and I think you told us about one of the par fours. I think Matt Goggin had to hit driver two iron to get to a par four. It tells you how long it is. But does this style of golf course open it up the field more to perhaps someone who doesn't hit it as long but is a great thinker? Uh, perhaps, yeah. yeah. Um, interesting question. Yeah, uh, yeah. Hopefully. hopefully. That would mean Jeff Ogilvie would, would play well. Um, but great thinker, yeah, it does. I mean, it's, it's just hard. It's just a. I thought it was the hardest course I'd ever seen. I just thought it was so long, and the greens were so difficult. You know, I think Corey Pavin hit 35 greens when he won the U.S. Open at Shinnecock, which is you, you, there's no other tournament in the world you can win hitting 35 greens in the U.S. Open. So you assume that's going to be the case here, where, where players will hit relatively few greens, and so it's about minimising the mistakes and scrambling around the greens and making putts and. You know, just the usual stuff that works. But Chris, can you? One of the more the saddest things in golf probably was the story of Harvey Ward, which you talk about in the book a little bit. Can you talk about him a little bit? 
Yeah, it was. A lot of people are familiar with Harvey from a book by Mark Frost called The Match, which was it was uh, Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson as the pros versus the amateurs, which was Ken Venturi and Harvey Ward. At the time, Harvey was, you know, he was about as good a player as anybody in the world. He'd won the U.S. Amateur a couple of times. He'd won the British Amateur. He was just a golden child. And uh, he got into trouble uh, because he, he, he was working at a car dealership for none other than Eddie Lowry, who was the guy that caddied for Francis Wimet. <clears throat> and Eddie was on the USGA board, and he just kind of covered the money stuff, you know. Was, so Harvey thought he was doing everything on board, and he got called in, and they had thought it was financially inappropriate here and there. And so basically, he was banned for a year. And but it was it just took a toll on him, you know. His uh, you know his stock was really really rising. I mean, he was just a phenomenal player, and it just kind of, it knocked the wind out of his sails. And in the book, uh, I'm critical about that because I think it could have been handled. And you know, when you have a talent like that, you don't want to break his back. You know, I mean, if there's something that went wrong, you know, this is golf. You're supposed to be gentlemen. You know, we'll have a discussion about it. You know, and but not it was done in a in a way, this wasn't very, very well done. So I think, as you say in there, the the knock to Harvey's sort of ego and his own self-image being sort of almost, almost labelled a cheat in a way, isn't it? Um, just just you know, it's heavy hand. It was really, really heavy-handed, and you know, there's no, you don't want to use a heavy hand unless it's absolutely necessary. And so, you know, it, it's just it was a pity at that point because the game lost a real shining talent, and so. Um, yeah, so that was, but that all of those things happened around the same time when they the original Pinehurst courses were um, kind of taken apart, and the Pinehurst had uh, the precursor to the Masters. It was every spring since 1901. You know, it was when everything was in bloom on number two course and the best players in the world, and it was a very elegant tournament. You know, it was a, you know, it was just a it was uh, Dan Jenkins described it as the Masters before the Masters, and they got rid of that at the same time that they took the courses apart and you know and roughed up poor Harvey. So that's one of the chapters occurs, or you know looks at those those three events just kind of stood out when I was um, looking through that era. I didn't intend to. And of course, you know, Chris, they all, they happened under the watch of James Tufts, the founder's grandson, didn't they? Who was also the president of the USGA uh, at right? Yeah, time. it was uh, Richard. Yeah, it was under all of that stuff ha- happened under his auspices, and uh, I, I I didn't realize you know everything that went on until I was doing the research then and. There was just no way to avoid it. I mean, I don't. It, it gives me no pleasure to like you know criticize people in retrospect and i know that you know he's a fine man and he he was trying to do the right thing you know he wasn't trying to mess up but as in in retrospect it was uh unfortunate um era so we've been trying to recover since then do i not recall shack a similar sort of thing to the harvey ward thing with tiger woods and arnold palmer before tiger finished college didn't we have a similar 
revisit Arnold bought him lunch or something and he had to go and send Arnold oh, a check for, yeah. for 30 bucks or something if well I that's thought. our that's our hideous NCAA yeah. they're just a, <laughs> a wretched organization amateur, amateur golf uh, in the spotlight again but uh, Harvey Ward Clates I think was probably the equivalent of Tiger Woods at the time it's certainly the feeling is that he was that good and lost to the game as Chris says over something so, so yeah, sad well, it, was so, it was pathetic I mean sure it was a rule of golf but I mean everyone Mm. Except Bill Cabral broke that rule. Uh, Chris, why didn't he just turn pro and say to hell with you guys and go out on the tour? I, I never kind of worked out why he just didn't say, okay, that's fine, I'll go and play on the tour. Well, the tour was, uh, there was no money in it. <laughs> that's one of the reasons a lot of those guys were amateurs. At the time, you know, it was, you had to finish in the top 10 like, constantly to uh, for it to be feasible. And, you know, Hogan had to leave the tour. He ran out of money. He, even yeah. if you won, it that much money. So that there wasn't at the time there wasn't really that much appeal in, um, in professional golf, except for the really hardcore guys like uh, and Hogan yeah. and Sam Snead. So, and they probably made more money on the side than they did in the tournaments. Oh, was, and, and the exhibition matches is where the real money was, wasn't it? Far more so than the tournaments. I mean, um, and, and as you say, well, that that match that you talked about. There was at Cypress Point. There's a fair bit of money riding on the outcome of that, if I recall the story correctly. Uh, those guys we kept that one under wraps, yeah. and we don't know what happened. But no. uh, I think that I think it was such a special um, day at Cypress Point that I, you know, I think the I don't I think that the money thing just you know just went out the window because the golf was so phenomenal. At, what were they twenty seven under between yeah yeah or something like that? The golf Do we know and, what happened to Harvey Ward? Chris, uh, did he go on to become yeah. a teacher, or what? What? What was his eventual fate? Well, he uh, moved here to the um, Pinehurst area, and he um, actually um, am friends with his widow. And mainly, he did play a bit of uh, senior tour golf, but I think he was a teacher mainly, and uh, one of his primary students was Payne Stewart. Um, he saw Payne on the driving range in 1999, right before he went off on Sunday. Payne had duck-hooked a three-wood, and Harvey walked up behind him, and he's like, well, I didn't teach you to hit that shot, you know. And <laughs> Payne turned around and laughed, of course. And uh, um, But, yeah, he taught Payne. He taught a lot of people. He taught some people that I knew. From and, Pinehurst, you know, always he, based in Pinehurst, was he? In the... Yeah, yeah, he was... Um, at different places, um, different clubs here. Forest Creek, he was, he's, his final years were there. And there's one story where he comes in, he's played at Forest Creek that day, and he sees one of his friends, and he's, his friend asks him, you know, did you shoot your age today? And he said, uh, oh, no, no, no. He said, I didn't play that bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Clates, that we could all get there, although I know you don't keep score, Clates, and that's started quite the discussion on one of the golf forums down here in Australia, uh, I notice. As well, but it would be nice to uh, to play so badly that you you managed to to shoot your age, Chris. It's been fabulous. Yeah, to I talk just to you know I've seen talented golfers for so many years, and I just I just can't figure out the ones that are, that are just that extraordinarily talented. I don't know how they do it. So it's yeah. quite something. To Indeed. Now we had ran on the show a couple of weeks ago, Chris, and somebody posted the link to that 
podcast on the Golf Club Atlas site and it attracted plenty of comments, one of which was that I always get to about an hour and 15 minutes and think people can't possibly be listening. Some people say they still do, but I'm not sure that the majority do. We've got some good feedback about that, but I think we should probably wrap it up. But we do want to thank the people at Golf Club Atlas for uh, for all their feedback oh, yeah. and some of their suggestions as well, Clates. I think there's been some good guests suggested after you posted asking about that, so we'll try and get yeah, some of those people to come on. There were some good ones there. Roger Cleveland would be good. Mm. Met with him a couple of months ago. He was terrific talking about clubs and the game. So, mm-hmm. fantastic, and uh, and there were a few others in there as well. But uh, and you got some good good feedback there, Shaq, on your site too about that particular yep. show. So it was uh, it was a good one, maybe a watershed one. We've sort of broken into Golf Club Atlas, which is we'd had a couple of mentions there before, but that was a very cluey move on our part to get the founder on and get everybody on side. But it was uh, one of the things was that people think they can listen to more than an hour and fifteen. I'm not convinced about that, so we will wrap it up. Chris, it's been fabulous to have you aboard. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure well, you'll thank in- you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure entirely. No, and I can honestly say, mm-hmm. what a fabulous read. Anybody who has an interest just in the game generally, and I mean, I, my interest is predominantly in the game, but it, what a fabulous story Pinehurst is and what a role it's played in golf, far more than I realised it, and got that directly from your book. So thank you for that, and thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yep, not at all. And uh, to you, Shaq, there in, I think you're at home, back at home, aren't you, in LA? Good to have you yeah. aboard, as always. Looking forward thank to you. Uh, you're off to the, when are you off to Pinehurst? I'm off uh, Sunday, and uh, I will post some details with the, uh, the show on my site on how to get uh, where you can get Chris's book. Yeah, I think it's on Amazon now uh, as well, which is fabulous. But well, that, by the way, Chris, I might say the artwork, some of the postcards and things here are fantastic. There's some wonderful imagery in the book, including some of the most beautiful buildings. Uh, oh, yeah, isn't that fantastic? Yeah, a lot of the old buildings are still there, as a matter of fact. And uh, but that was, it was a, just a great pleasure to go through all of that stuff, reading the materials, these different stories that happened, and also seeing all this fabulous Im- imagery and whatnot. It was, I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Some of that, that 19, sort of 30s postcards of, you know, come to Pinehurst, and, oh, just fantastic stuff. Uh, Clates, I'm sure you enjoyed that as well. I'm sure we've all enjoyed getting your insights today and looking forward to uh, watching next week. Thanks for taking some time. Thanks, Dave. Enjoyed it. As always, and that wraps it up for State of the Game episode 40, which is a landmark. I forgot a minute. We got to episode 40. Some said we'd never make it. We said so at 30, and we're still here at 40, Shaq. So going from strength to strength. Been great to have you on board. Hope you've enjoyed it. Looking forward to your company again next time on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.